older. Amelie turned seven yesterday and Lane turned ten today. And they're just rebellious because they keep on getting older and older and older. But what a blessing, what a blessing children are. Particularly five daughters. When everybody says, oh, we're, we're expecting our first. Man, I hope it's a girl. I really do. And Justin Dunn kept, he said, man, you were right. Yes, having a daughter is great. I said, wait till she says, daddy. Oh, you'll melt. You'll melt. Well, this morning we're going to continue in this uh, series in John. And we have a chapter here that is one of greatest chapters in the Bible. Because we approach John chapter 17 and we hear the heart of God toward God. And we get, uh, I think we, we hear the heart and we hear the mind of Christ and of the Father and the work of the Holy Spirit and all that Jesus has been doing and getting up to this point. And it is with much reverence that and uh, awe that we get to spend some time preaching out of this chapter. Because out of, uh, as we have discussed, I know when, a few years ago, when uh, Keith came to the staff saying, look, I think we need to do a series in John, I think immediately all of our minds jumped to John 17. Because it's just that huge of a chapter. And particularly what, we're just going to look at the first five verses this morning, and that's going to be enough for me just to say, wow. And that's all I need to do out of this chapter. <laughs> and I do apologize <clears throat> for my cough. Cough medicine not working as much as I wanted to. But let's read uh, verses 1 through 5. Follow as I read John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. (coughs) Let us pray. Father, it is with uh, deepest gratitude that the Son prays and it's recorded for us to delve into and dig into and discover. And Lord, we ask for the, the presence and the work of your Spirit this morning. We know that you want us to hear something very particular to minister to our own souls, to to capture our hearts and to exalt you in our lives. And we ask that that would be accomplished 
this morning. Please, Lord, by your grace and through your son, we pray. Amen. This morning, we have all come to church uh, with different life circumstances occurring. Some people are experiencing life as, uh, you know, it's going all right. Things are going pretty well. Got some joy in some categories. The kids are almost obedient and things are going well. Maybe the business, my business hasn't been hurt so much as uh, some others that I've been hearing about. And uh, things are going pretty well. While others are maybe coming this morning, dealing through uh, a life circumstance that's just taken the breath away. Uh, Maybe it's uh, it's suffering could be physical suffering. Where thoughts have gone all over the map and all over the world and trying to figure out all the what ifs and we don't know the answers to the what ifs and and the chronic pain that's when will this can heaven come now because I'm so tired of dealing with this. Or maybe it's uh, an emotional suffering that captivates your mind and, and days are gray like today when the sun is out. We all come with these I mean, relational strife. This is how we come to church. And if I were to ask you this morning, what would you... Jesus is our high priest. He's our intercessor. We find that in in the scriptures. What would you want Jesus to pray for you this morning about? If we don't give the typical church answer, I think a lot of us would just say, can I just have some relief, please? Can, can I just have an ease in this season because uh, it's uncomfortable and I don't like it? Or maybe amnesia. Can I just forget this and, and act like it never happened? Jesus, can you pray for that for me? Well, we come to this scripture and here Jesus has, uh, he's met with his disciples. He knows in John chapter 12, we discovered that the, he knows the hour is now come. And he prays for then his father to glorify him. And and the disciples hear the voice from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it. And he takes them into the upper room and he has the last supper, washes their feet, has the last supper. And then they journey out and they're walking along the road and they're going somewhere. They're on their way and they get Right before the brook Kidron, we find this in in John chapter 18. They're getting ready. This is when Jesus, uh, we don't know exactly when he prays this prayer, but he offers a prayer. Most probably right before he crosses the Kidron Valley to go up to the Garden of Gethsemane, where we know in the other Gospels where we have the account of him falling down and he's he's surrendering himself to the Father's will, not his own. in, In receiving the cup of the Father's wrath. And this is the prayer here. He, the disciples are in a time of need. They have life circumstance where they, a lot of them are thinking, okay, we get a title after this, right? This is still going to happen. And maybe they're not getting it so much. And they're trying to figure out, they're trying to figure out some of the things that Jesus is saying. And if we've seen you, we've seen the Father, we know you, we know the Father, what, uh, show us. So they're trying, to, they're trying to put this all together and trying to figure out. There's a time of need. Jesus has told them they're getting ready to be scattered. Things aren't going to be good for them as they go. They are trying to put all this together. They have a time of need. And here, this is the prayer that Jesus offers for them in their time of need. And I think ultimately us, for for those of us who are disciples of Christ, there is for us in this prayer, Jesus' prayer in our time of need. In the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our sufferings, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our joy, in the midst of everything. 
Here's what Jesus offers. And traditionally, this chapter is broken up into three sections. We're going to take the first one this morning. But Jesus prays for himself. In the next paragraph, Jesus prays for his disciples. And then he prays for the church in the final paragraph of the chapter. Traditionally, that's how that looks. But there is so much in this chapter. I've been studying this week, uh, read about a man in Great Britain that preached 45 sermons just from this chapter. That's how thick this chapter is. And it is a uh, it, it's a huge one. But what what I believe the Lord would have us understand and look into is that here is Jesus prayer for us, no matter what our life circumstance, no matter how we've come to church this morning. It might seem strange that, OK, um, Jesus prays for his glory and he prays for himself, prays for his disciples. And how does that fit? Well, what we find and what we've just read in these verses, Jesus is saying, I want Father, I I'm asking for the glory that I had with you before the world began. That I've put down in order to come to the earth. And this is what what God uh, had promised from Genesis chapter three. This hour, that hour was was predicted back then, was prophesied back then by God himself. When he says that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, but the serpent will bruise the servant's heel. This is that moment, and they're coming upon this, and this is a huge time of need. And even in Jesus' own time of need, we find this again in the Garden of Gethsemane in his prayer there. There's a surrender there. There's a, Father, you sent me to do something. I believe I've accomplished that. But this is why. So they will know me, and they will know you. All that God has done in gathering a people, all that we find in Scripture, he's gathering a people, so we will Know him, and by knowing him, be transformed and display his glory. And that's what we'll discover with our time this morning. First, I think what we need to uh, just kind of dig deeper into is the glory aspect. Because in defining glory, it's very difficult to define glory in our baby talk. We have John Calvin called this, whenever Jesus prayed like this, it was his baby talk as a mother with a small child. Because we can't even begin to fathom all the glories and all uh, the knowledge that God has in and of himself because he's God. That he has to condescend so much, even in his language, just to give us things so we can begin to understand them. And with that, all, all that we have, we can dig so much deeper. But in this, it's, it's very difficult to understand because in Scripture, we don't just find one word to describe. We, we have glory. We have the beauty of God. We have his face, his name that he declares. We have uh, his renown. There's his majesty and splendor. All these things are our attempt in our language to try to give God the place that he deserves as being the only true God, but also the place that he deserves in our hearts and trying to figure out how is it that we're to understand you and gain a knowledge of all that is described as his glory. When we say God is beautiful, what does that mean? Well, it means he's glorious. What's that mean? It means he's majestic and he's splendid and he's loving and there's a, there's a need to go deeper. The, this word glory appears over 350 times in Scripture. So there, just this word, not to mention all the other ones that I referenced in terms of all the different things that describe God's glory, 
it's, it's in Scripture, but God gives his own definition of his glory that we want to look at. So turn, if you would, to uh, Exodus chapter 33. We're picking up on a scene where uh, God has actually said, I've had enough with those people, Moses. I'll make a people of your own that your people can display my glory. (coughs) Excuse me. We don't have to worry about those stiff necked stubborn people. And Moses actually says, no, that's not what you said when you let us out of Egypt. Your name is at stake. And here in this interaction that Moses and God are having. We come to verse 18 and Moses says, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness. So automatically God attributes goodness where Moses had glory. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. See how it's in all caps right there? Whenever you see L-O-R-D in all caps like that, it usually it is referring to the Hebrew word for God that actually is unpronounceable. It doesn't have any consonants, so to speak, in it. It is so. But they did that intentionally. Uh, Israel did that intentionally in order to reverence the name of God and say mere men shouldn't even be allowed to say the name of God. And here we have. God telling Moses, I'll make my goodness pass before you. I will show you my name, the Lord, which we know as Yahweh. But there is something deeper even with that. Let's continue. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me, by me where I shall stand you on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you will see my back. But my face shall not be seen. Go into chapter 34, verse five. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there. And proclaim the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And look what Moses does. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Here he has seen just the backside of God. Didn't see his face because we we see from the whole of Scripture that, that God dwells in a light that is so bright. It's an unapproachable light and it's a light so bright that if we were to view it, we'd be annihilated in a second. Done with. Disintegrated. Because no man can see God's face and live. And here, Moses gets to see. God grants the request and he declares himself to Moses. We don't know what he saw. 
But he saw something that was, I think, twofold. One, he saw a revelation of character. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Compassionate, loving, steadfast love, forgiving and just. He will not clear the the guilty, but he forgives transgression and sin. And we find in this that there is an aspect in who God is as love, who he is as being holy and just. That even within God, he wants to love his people, but they have a problem of sin. So there's a divine dilemma, as John Stott calls it, even within him declaring himself this way. That he's going to fulfill and accomplish the work for in the hour that Jesus has come. But we have a, Moses sees first a revelation of character. What he also sees is a revelation of radiance. He sees that revelation of light, not so much simply because we see that he bows quickly. And usually when people are bowing quickly in scriptures because they're terrified, it's, it's a combination of you're holy and I'm dead. We find that in Isaiah 6 when he's seeing the glory of God. He's seeing, actually believe, Jesus exalted, his heavenly being exalted. He is terrified in that moment. He says, woe is me. That means I'm dead. This is what Moses... But later on in verse 34, we find in in, uh, verse... Chapter 34, verse 29, when Moses came down from the Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that his skin, the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. And you know what their response was? Look, next verse, Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. There is something of this this revelation and this revelation of glory being of character and of radiance that is both terrifying and intriguing all at the same time. And here is here's how God is defining his glory in this revelation of character. He says, my goodness will pass by in him being the Lord. He's saying, I'm holy. I'm powerful. No one on earth is like me. He is setting himself apart as the only true God. And he's merciful and gracious. This powerful, almighty being, almighty God is a God of love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. Slow to anger. Aren't we so appreciative that God is that way? Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's a long-suffering love. That's a patient love that says, though you fall and fall and fall, I will still love you and my love will be thrown towards you and will be good to you. Because of the forgiveness that he is and the just God that he is. God cannot let sin go unpunished because that would mean something's more powerful than him. He can't overlook aspects of who he is. He's got to satisfy all that he is. And we see in this revelation of radiance that with with Moses bowing and also with his face shining, he was beholding something that was terrifying, but it had a, a peculiar glow about it. That when Aaron and everybody else saw it, they were afraid of it too. Of course, they didn't have the other aspect of all the character yet. Moses hadn't explained that part, probably. They just say, whoa, dude, your face is glowing. And we, it's, 
Makes me a little nervous. Don't know quite what to do with that. Can you wear a veil? They asked him to do that. Can you cover it so we're not so afraid? And Moses did that. But we know later in the story, his, 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 the glowing was fading because he wasn't with God as much as he had been. There was a radiance that God had as he displayed that to Moses. It got on Moses and it, it was on him in a way that everybody else saw it as well. We see uh, this radiance in the New Testament, in Matthew 17, the story of the transfiguration, the beginning of that chapter, where here Jesus was transfigured before them and his clothes what became white as light. And what did the other disciples do? What did the three who were there? They started talking out of their ear because they had no idea what to say. Peter, maybe it's good that we build you some tabernacles. I think that would be good. Because he didn't know what he was talking about. You know what they did? They got on the ground. They were terrified. They hit the deck and they said, I think immediately they knew we shouldn't be here. This is not quite right. So Jesus goes over and he touches them to let them know it's okay. Don't be afraid. Don't be so terrified anymore. Everybody's gone. It's okay. We see this radiance. We see this revelation of character coupled with a radiant glory that is beyond our capacity to describe and explain because if we would if somebody has seen it to talk about it they wouldn't be here to talk about it they'd be annihilated and we also find that here God is displayed himself we also find in scripture that God is actively communicating his glory He's communicating this character. He's communicating this radiance. And he's done, he's done that through creation. We find that Psalm 19 where it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. We also find that in, uh, in Christ himself. That here, God in the, the plan of all redemptive history has said, I am planning, and we find that in Colossians, that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. All of that character... All of that radiance. But Jesus did something interesting. He put down that radiance when he came to the earth. There was still a radiance about him because that's why people were afraid. How many times did Jesus tell his disciples, don't be afraid? They saw something there and they didn't know what to do with themselves. The, uh, The centurion that watched Jesus die, he saw something in order to say, surely this is the son of God. Because there's this coupled aspect that God is declaring, Habakkuk 2.14 says, The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And the waters cover the sea. And they will declare God, and particularly the knowledge of the glory of God. And that knowledge we find in this passage uh, in John 17. I need to go back there, I'm sorry. We find we're going to take this kind of in a sandwich way, uh, verses one and five, and then look at two and four and then finish in verse three. So that's kind of we'll move to the center of this passage, so to speak. But I I believe the the bookends of this this paragraph right here are Jesus asking for his glory. So we have uh, this first point, the glorious son in verse uh, one and five. He's asking for the glory of his glory so that. The son may be glorified and he's also asking for a return of glory. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That was verse five. Jesus is asking here this hour that has come. 
May it be a revelation of your character. May it also be a restoration and a revelation of my radiance. Of my glory that I had with you before the world began. And this word, and what we're finding with the Father and Son is a mutual glorification. The Father, the Son's asking the Father, glorify me so that I may glorify you. And that will happen because the Father has said, here's my plan for you. My plan for you is you would go and you'd bear the sin of my people that I may forgive them. That my wrath, my justice would be satisfied. My wrath would be averted from coming on them. The cup of my wrath. And that being uh, averted and taken from them, they would now be standing righteous in my sight because of your life. Because of my son. And they would have eternal life with me. So in the Son being glorified, and that word glorify just means to make the attributes known. A proclamation, a herald of good news. We've got to pay attention to this. Just like you're, uh, if it's something, a headline that takes you by surprise, somebody needed to get out. We've got to tell people about this. Here, this is Jesus praying to the Father for that. Make it a headline. Make, make your attributes known as I am fulfilling the hour that you, you've given me. The Father's already promised, in John 12, as we said, the Father's already promised the glory of the Son. And that glory is going to come through the hour. And now the baby that was born in Bethlehem will fulfill the reason that he came in the cross. He'll fulfill the one mission that he was given, and that mission was a substitutionary death on our behalf. And there's glory in Do you know there's glory in even revelation occurring that God would even demonstrate himself to us? That's glorious. Because you can think, just do a quick run of all the uh, man-made deities that the earth has throughout history. They didn't say much. That's why I was trying to find new sacrifices to appease the gods. Because they never spoke. Here we have a God speaking to us. That is glorious. Undeserving. Weak. Sinful, rebellious. We have a God that speaks to us because of who He is. The hour that Jesus knows is here, is the arena for the proclamation of the attributes of God, the character and the radiance of God. (coughs) And Jesus putting down His radiant glory and becoming a man, now He's asking for that glory to be returned and He knows it's only through the cross, that that will happen. On the other side of the cross, he will again be the radiant character before that happened since before the world. And here, the hour of the cross, and this would be that glorious work that Jesus referred to. In verse 2, he refers, uh, since you have given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given me. Then verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I put these two together simply because I think the relationship is, Jesus has been given a gift of people by the Father. But those people can't be in fellowship and can't be in relationship with the Father until Christ has done the work of satisfying God's wrath toward their sin and bridging that gap with the cross, with the means that would be the the glorious demonstration of this glory. And he says, 
I've completed this work. I think Jesus is is able to speak in this past tense because here he's lived the perfect life, which is necessary in order to be the perfect sacrifice that he's getting ready to be. And he knows the mission will be fulfilled. Why? Because he's praying like he taught his disciples. Let your will be done on earth and it's as it's already been done in heaven. There's an aspect that Jesus knows it's, it's been done. The father and I have agreed. It will be done. The work is accomplished and this work is salvation. This work is redeeming a people from sin and separation from God in order to be in union and fellowship with him forevermore. And Jesus understands that this hour and this this trouble that comes upon him and we see this trouble in the garden as he's praying and falling to his knees. This trouble that's coming upon him is because he knows the sin that has separated God's people from himself. He will experience on the cross. He will have to be separated from his father in order to be the penalty of sin, to bring the gift of those people that have been he's been given authority and and the the right to grant eternal life to. He's been given these people and he knows I need to be separated like you are in order for this to come back, in order for reconciliation to come in order for redemption and redeeming you from the clutch of sin and rebellion and waywardness and living your own life your own way, to be in fellowship with God, which He has wanted us to be in fellowship with Him. Jesus' work will be culminated in His laying down His life before the Father on the cross as the sacrificial sin-bearer To satisfy God's wrath and also grant righteousness to those the Father gave him. Jesus is our substitute to bring us back to God. Given the problem of sin and the holiness and justice of God, God had to satisfy himself and bring us to him. And he satisfies himself in being him being the sacrifice to bear the penalty of our sin, to bring us back to himself. Jesus' work of salvation is the revelation of the glory of the character and the radiance of God. The cross is the place that God has stored up and said, I'm going to reveal myself. Moses, I'll reveal myself here. I'll reveal myself to you. But I'm really going to reveal myself in my son at the hour of the cross That he's been sent for. Because what we find. We can do this correlation. Look at the things that we've just seen in in Exodus 33. With the revelation of the character of God. We see goodness in the cross. We see power and wisdom in the cross. We see mercy and grace in the cross. We see love in the cross. We see forgiveness accomplished through the cross. We see the justice of God satisfied because of the cross. He was able to remain just, remain holy because there was a sacrifice for sin. But now in his love, he gets to pour out all that love and attribute his son's righteousness to all those that have rebelled to him that he wants to save from the grip of his own wrath and his and sinfulness that it's bound up in our hearts and he says this is what I'm declaring to you so you can be mine
put a couple of scriptures on there, just the New Testament uh, references. You can look at some of these yourself, but in the New Testament, we find uh, the New Testament writer, particularly Paul, that's attributing these aspects to the revelation of the character of God in the cross. Titus 3, verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What majesty is bound up in the cross in the demonstration of God's love. We find that in Romans 5, 8. While we were yet sinners, God demonstrated His love for us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins, to, to satisfy His wrath. Ephesians 1. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. We find there is a glorious demonstration of God in the cross. The hour of the work. The glorious work that Jesus came to do. James Montgomery Boyce this quotes in your outline. We see God's sovereignty in a way in which the death of Christ was planned, promised, and then executed. Without the slightest deviation from the prophecies of the Old Testament. We see God's justice and sin actually being punished. Without the cross, God could have forgiven our sin gratuitously to speak from a human perspective, but it would not have been just. Only in Christ is that justice satisfied. We see God's righteousness and recognition of the fact that only Jesus, the righteous one, could pay sin's penalty. We see God's wisdom in the planning and ordering of such a great salvation. We see his love. For it is only at the cross that we know beyond doubt that God loves us, even as he loves Jesus. I think I think we can also include in here the fact that when Jesus was praying for those that God had given him as he's thinking and praying about the hour for which he's getting ready to fulfill. God's gift to him was on his mind as we want to do this because we want a people that will be redeemed. We want a people that will be in fellowship with us. We also see in the, the cross and the subsequent resurrection, we see the radiance of the glory of God demonstrated. We see a resurrection. When the ladies went up to say, well, who's going to roll the stone away? They already found this big, bright light had already rolled the stone away. There was a radiance there. And they were terrified. Because the angels said, don't be afraid. You're looking for Jesus. He ain't here. But here, here's where the glorious knowledge comes in. Verse 3. 
Jesus is giving eternal life to all whom the Father has given him. And we find, and Jesus is describing, he's defining eternal life. He said, and this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I remember years ago, as a college student trying to figure out purpose of life questions. What's my purpose in life? Since I think I was already interning here at the church and just trying to figure out what and pastoring is that really forever? What 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 am I doing? You know, those questions that all of us have come across. And I remember sitting with Peter in the the nursery of the old church, watching a video of Leonard Ravenhill, an old guy that uh, we wouldn't see the same things doctrinally in many places. But this is what I was benefited by Leonard Ravenhill. It's a video of this old man. And he said, this is eternal life. Not that we achieve this or achieve that, but that we know God. And there was a light bulb that came off. And I said, that's it. That's it. I'm just supposed to know him. Now, it was easy for me to simplistically say that because now what I've been the benefit of and I've received the benefit of in the past some odd years, 15 years, is to be able now to say, wow, I still get to know him. I've known some things, but there's so much more I don't know that I get to discover and I get to find and I get to see and hold and look at different angles and try to figure out, oh, God, what did you mean when you did this? And how is this? There, there's just, I think what I've seen now is a depth that just gets deeper. <laughs> still realizing that in many ways I'm just still in the shallow end. But there's so much more to be enjoyed. There's so much more to know. And here's the thing. Jesus said, he connects our knowing him as part of his glorification. See, we can so easily sit there and think, well, you know, God's going to do what he's going to do and it's just going to be his way and, and that's just what's going to be it. And I'll just stand by and watch. But that's not what God has called us to. God has said, yes, I'm, I'm sovereign. I'm going to accomplish my purposes, but you're part of my purpose. And your knowledge and growing knowledge of me is part of. Of my son's glorification. I believe when Peter says in 1 Peter that angels long to look at the revelation that's being given of the son of of God. I, I think one of the things they're looking at is our growth in our knowledge of who God is. As we grow, I think angels don't know. And they're waiting for it to be revealed as we're reading our Bibles, as the light's going on in our own minds saying, God, that is awesome. Angels rejoicing. Yes, that's our God. That's who we get to serve. As they looked at the hour of the work of Christ, as they're they're seeing knowledge and they're knowing... But this knowledge is not simply an awareness. Yeah, I know it's there. It's not it's not information. It's not only by experience. You know, sometimes we uh, and people might have experiences with God, but that is not the knowledge that God is talking. They have experience with God and not be regenerated or not have a new heart. 
And, and we, we need to be careful not to equate that with, no, you've been saved. Because you had an experience with God. No, is there a knowledge that's growing? Not, not awareness alone, not information, not experience alone. Not just an understanding of God alone. But it's an understanding of ourselves in light of who God is. And His work of redemption that's revealed in His Son. This knowledge that Jesus is talking about that is eternal life. He equates eternal life with this knowledge. And get this, eternal life is not simply living forever. And we can so easily make it that. We're going to live forever in heaven with God. Isn't that so much fun? They will have flannel graphs and stuff in heaven too. This is eternal life. That you know God. Now, and in heaven. We begin now at the point of salvation, the point of conversion, where there's a surrender of our own hearts as an express faith. God, I believe you've done that. You've saved me. You, Jesus died in my place. I receive that. I receive the life that you have for me. We begin a process of growth and knowing that never ends. So now, you're, you're experiencing eternal life, aren't you? It's not something that will happen, but it will happen. As we're transferred from this life into the next. But the, the eternal life doesn't begin when we die. The eternal life is now. And this, this, let's remember the most famous verse of the Bible, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus, God sent Jesus to die for us that if we believe him, we could know him. And in this knowledge, there's a fellowship and a deep intimacy that's associated with this knowledge. There's a relationship that's not uh, it's not a courteous relationship. It's not uh, a relationship of God. I think you're up there somewhere. This is a relationship that we know it brings a life changing. It, It brings the rest of his prayer to fulfillment. It brings joy and it brings peace in the midst of a troubled world and a fallen world. It brings unity in the body of Christ. That's what's left in his prayer. And that's only going to happen as we know God. And it's knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. This is the only time Jesus refers to himself as Jesus Christ. And here we have him saying that they would know you, the only true God and Jesus whom you've said. See, we can know God and we know God with Jesus. If we know God by himself, it's terrifying. Because what do we have? Let's let J.C. Ryle help us with this. We must know the son as well as the father. God known without Christ is a being whom we can only fear and dare not approach. The knowledge he means is a knowledge which dwells in the heart as well as in the head and influences life. A true saint is one who knows the Lord. To know God on the one hand, his holiness, his purity, his hatred of sin. And to know Christ on the other hand, his redemption, his mediatorial office, his love to sinners are the two grand foundations of saving religion. To know God apart from Christ is to know his wrath and his terror. Only his radiant glory. But to know him with Christ is the fulfillment of his character. And we see the full picture. And that picture is both terrifying and intriguing. It draws us to know more. We have, by Jesus' sacrifice, an enabling of knowledge. 
that we can know God because of Jesus' sacrifice. We have a knowledge that is a continuance of Jesus' work. I put result in there. I think a better word would be continuance. Knowledge is the continuance of Jesus' work. That even Jeremiah prophesied about. Jeremiah 31. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Do you see the proximity of that statement with knowledge? They shall know me. They shall enter into a deep, intimate fellowship relationship with me. And it's going to be because I've forgiven their sin. And I will now interact with them as, as counting their sin as paid for. It's done with Christ paid for that sin. You get to now experience the eternal life of growing in the knowledge of who God is. We also see there is a, a knowledge that's acquired and discovered in beholding God. If you would quickly turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Actually, 3.18. We'll start there. And we all with unveiled face... Catch that. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul is saying we can look at God. There doesn't have to be a veil. There doesn't have to be something preventing us from seeing God's glory. Because of the work Christ did, we have access and we have pleasure and we have ability to see God and not be annihilated. Amazing. Chapter 4. Skip down to verse 6. For God... Who said, let, shine, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Simply put, it means this. We behold God's glory, his character, his radiance in the cross. And we experience eternal life and growing in our knowledge of God as we continue to look at the cross. As we continue to rehearse the glory of the cross. As we continue to rehearse all the character of God that was displayed in the cross and through the cross. And the radiant glory now that's being proclaimed by our lives. Because we get to look at a God with peace. Not terror. Where there was once terror, yes, there's, there's a proper fear that even those who are saved and have a relationship with God should have. Meaning, we know his hatred of sin. If we sin, we should be scared. God, I've sinned against you. I'm not right with myself. Because I know you're not. But where do I go? I go to the cross. 
And I'm reminded of the love. I'm reminded of the mercy and the grace and, and the forgiveness that's been accomplished because of Christ's work there. We see the wisdom. We see the power, the justice, the holiness, the love, and we rehearse it over and over and over and over again. That's what it means to preach the gospel to yourself. I don't know if you've heard that within the realm of the church years ago. We were introduced to a book called The Discipline of Grace by Jerry Bridges, an excellent resource. I'd encourage everybody to read it. I think chapter three is preach the gospel to yourself. It means rehearse the glories of the cross. Rehearse me and my own weakness. I can't save myself. I need a mediator between me and God. Christ was that mediator. And all that was displayed and now is welcoming me into that fellowship, into that deep intimacy so I can experience joy. So I can experience power to overcome the fallen world that I live in, that, that my flesh so longingly cries out for. And we can be one in our relationship with one another as that's being displayed as glory for God. I think this is what... Just think about knowing God. The mere fact that we're able to be able to know God. Amazing. But I wonder if David knew something of this glory and desire to know it when he said in Psalm 27, 4, one thing do I ask for? One thing am I going to seek after? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To do what? To gaze upon His beauty. David's gazing upon that beauty. Now, when Paul in Philippians 3, I'm going to read that one so I don't misquote it. Verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends on faith that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What's the motivation to go after God? What's the motivation to pick up a book of the month to experience eternal life? What's the motivation to get with the word of God every day to experience eternal life? To know God, to rehearse His majesty, to rehearse His wonder, His splendor, His beauty. And as you begin to look at the cross, I hope even this morning that's begun to happen. The cross, the cross has been, or the work of Christ in the cross, meaning His sacrificial death as well as His resurrection. That whole work should be exalted. And it should be terrifying. Wow. And it should be intriguing. I want to know more. 
I want to know more for the sake of my family. I want to know more for the sake of my relationships in the church. I want to know more for the sake of me being a disciple of Christ. I want to know more. And I won't stop. Now the knowledge transfers into life. So just a quick side note. Make sure that when you're gaining the knowledge, it's finding an avenue to be expressed. Because the knowledge all just being bottled up in you. Something ain't working right. Wire is not connected correctly. There should be an expression in the life. Why? Because we're looking at the ultimate demonstration of love and humility and wisdom and power. And we get to rehearse it. Jeremiah chapter 9. I'll read this. It says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. You know what? The world wants us, the enemy of our souls and our flesh, want us to figure out ways to be famous, to experience fortune. And sadly, for uh, the generation coming, fun. At all costs. No matter what the cost. I want to be famous on my appearance. I want everybody to praise me. Fame, fortune, and fun. But here, Jeremiah... 500 years before Jesus is born is saying don't find don't find your boast in those things what is it but let him verse 24 let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love justice and righteousness in the earth for in these things I delight declares Yahweh stand up together. In our pursuit of fame, fortune, and fun, there's an arrogance, a pride operating in us to find our own glory in those things. Here Jesus says, as he's glorified and as we know him and our knowledge of him as it's increasing and growing, maturing and finding influences in life, that'll be glorious to him, but it will also be our glory. Just as the the son came to do the will of the father, we are called to do the will of the father as co-heirs. So we will experience that glory that he may exalt us in the proper time. I think there's just two questions for application for this sermon. The first one is, do you know him? Have you entered into a relationship, a deep intimacy with God? That you know the son has paid for your sins because you have expressed your faith in that. And it's all your life has been thrown into it. Jesus died in my place so I would be forgiven of my sins and I could have a relationship with God now and experience all that He is, Jesus taking my wrath from me. If you have not entered into that type of relationship, please do. And it simply could be this. God, I want to start now. Please forgive me. I believe Jesus died for me. Show me that. I want to know it. And the second question is this. Are you knowing him? Are you?
are you knowing Him? Philippians 3, Paul describes that thing for which Jesus came to lay hold of for us. It was eternal life. It was knowledge of God. Knowing Him in the inmost parts of our being. Are you laying hold of Christ in the same way? Are you knowing Him? Or are there things that, whether it be things of the world, or things of relationships, or things of suffering, or things of anything, crowd out? Because Jesus' prayer for all of us right now, no matter, what, no matter what our life circumstance, no matter the circumstances of lives that will face us as weeks, months, Lord willing, years occur, Jesus' prayer is this, that you know the one true God and Jesus whom He sent. Lord, we ask for your grace and your mercy to be more thrilling to us than ever. We ask that the radiance of your glory would be known to us as we gaze upon your beauty and are conformed to the image that we're seeing. We ask that the character that you've dis- displayed of yourself in Scripture and culminating in the work of Christ on the cross would be to us eternal life. We will glory in you, Jesus. I will glory in Whose priceless blood has ransomed me